The scriptures call us to maturity, but what should Christian progression look like according to the scriptures? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Seitz. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. If you haven't watched the first part of this discussion, the link will be in the description. But in that discussion, what we talked about is that there's like five stages of life in the Christian life. There's basically infancy, uh, childhood, young adulthood, prime of life, and then elder. And the first one we talked about infancy, how as an infant your desire should be for the pure milk of the word, like it says in First Peter 2. And then we talked about in childhood, you're supposed to be putting away childish things, as Paul wrote. And so now we're going to talk about young adulthood, which is kind of from puberty until about 30. That's where Christ starts his public ministry. Other prophets start their public ministry at 30. So there seems to be in Scripture a clear definition or a clear changeover. And then the prime of life is when you could act as a priest. The priest, the Levitical priesthood, they went from 30 to 50. And then after 50, they retired, and they no longer did the work of the priesthood, meaning the slaughtering of the an- or participating in slaughtering the animals and burning it and stacking the stuff to the burnt offering. And instead, what they did was they just advised and directed. And so that's kind of the third stage of adulthood. So, so what should it look like, that, that young adulthood, and what should we expect to accomplish during that? So, I mean, as we think about it, and like you gave a recap, I mean, we're – as you're coming into young adulthood, you've put away childish things. You've you've learned you've started learning to be productive, and, and you've actually learned to be productive. So, about, so really, at this point, you should think about it. You're coming into adulthood. You've you've put away childish things. You're actually you you know how to be productive. You know how to do work, and now you're coming into a point where you may be doing very specific types of work, but you're actually starting to set up the household and your kind of your place in the world. You're really kind of coming into. This is what I'm. This is what I'm going to do with my time. This is how I'm going. This is how I've, I've learned to be productive in general, and even maybe even now you're going to be productive in a more specific way. This is the trade I'm going to have. These are the skills I'm going to develop on top of that general, you know, very general skills, moving to specific skills, and and to and depending on the area you move into would affect the level of specificity that you go. But you really are carving out your place in the world. You're setting up your household. And you're establishing yourself so that you have a place in the world and you can provide, you can provide for that, whether it's a family, whether it's, you know, if, you could be in lots of different situations depending on where you are in the world, depending on what's gone on, but that you can provide for others and create that place for yourself in the world. And that's a, it's a very distinct stage from those first two. And I think, you know, I kind of think I said this in the last episode where, if you look at infancy, it's where others care for you. If you look at childhood, it's where you learn to care for yourself, to have self-control, to be able to to survive for yourself. And then when you look at young adulthood, that's when you like establish your household. And then you go on and you start to affect the people around you, and then you start to affect the next generation if you kind of look at the five stages. And so that young adulthood, there's lots of changes because it really is establishing where there's – people in your life that you're supposed to be serving, whether it's your customers in a career or whether it's your wife or whether it's your children, it starts to not just be about you like childhood was where you're just, you know, the focus is to put away childish things, not to like advance in the world. But now all of a sudden as a young adult, you're supposed to be affecting other people. And if you remember from the first episode, um, we're, we're looking at the stage of life, not primarily 
you know, from the actual age, but from the picture that, that it is of the Christian life, um, which which may or may not match, you know, the physical ages. Uh, so we're looking at, you know, what is required of people in, you know, the literal, you know, uh, 13 to 30, and then saying, well, for Christians who have reached that same stage of maturity, what does that look like? And so like where before you said this is moving from – being able to take care of yourself, to be able to take care of others. There's a real broadening of the way you think about things. You know, I mean, you think about a a child when he gets up in the morning, there are certain, you know, he's thinking about his specific duties that he does, and he does these things, you know, he gets up, he gets dressed, he brushes his teeth, he's got specific chores or things that he has to do. There's things that he has to go through. He's been doing education. He's been doing, you know, he's been doing, you know, whether it's things to build his strength, things to understand things, he's been learning. And, and those are all good things, but they're very, very focused on, like you said, internal. And now this starts to be if these things have a broader purpose. I'm, I'm not just putting money together for things that I can buy, but I'm trying to make sure that I can do – I'm going to start trying to learn work that gives me enough profit that I can support more than just myself. I need to be thinking about the work that I do, that it's not just for today, that it's not – it's for longer term. I need to be start thinking more strategically. I'm thinking – how do I use my time and how is this going to further things? I'm setting myself up not just for tomorrow, but for next week, for next month. And you're starting to, you're moving into a stage where you do more planning than you've really done before. And and that's a real shift for for a young man. It's, I mean, it's a, and it's a real shift that a lot of people, I mean, I remember having this moment where I went, I don't think I made plans until I was a lot later in life. You know what I mean? I'd, where I just really had, I mean, I make little plans, but as far as like really setting down and actually trying to be deliberate about being strategic about things, you know, and it's really easy to to do that and move through life. And other people not necessarily look at you and go, you're doing a horrible job, but there's a part of it where you're not really, you're not doing what you should be doing. And, you know, you look at Galatians where Paul writes that there's no difference between the son and the slave until they're full grown, until they're the heir. And so when you think about it, a slave is largely told, do this, do this, do this, do this, right? I mean, that's kind of what it means to be a slave, is that a master is telling you what to do. There's good slaves, there's bad slaves. You know, the better the slave, the more it's like, go do this today versus go do this now. But when you become the heir, when you become responsible for it, and that's kind of where it starts at 13 is you start to take responsibility for your life. You stop having this idea that everybody should be telling you what to do at all times. You start to have to take responsibility for yourself and say, this is how I should direct my time, which also means that during that time you're saying, you know, like you said before, what work do you want to do? What, what, how do you want to advance in life and how do you want to establish yourself? I remember I ran across this maybe 20 years ago, 25 years ago, but uh, there was a famous Harvard business review, um, article and it was called like how to get the monkey off your back and in there there's a person kind of broke down like the idea of like initiative into five different steps and like you know the bottom step was the person sets around until they're told what to do and the next step is they ask do you want me to do something the next step is they say do you want me to do x like do you want me to take out the trash the next step is is they go and they do several things and they come back and they go you know i, I did this and the, you know i did and the final step is where they're actually doing things and reporting in you know what they've They've got an understanding of what they should do, and they're kind of checking back in with a person. And that's that's very – and it's really interesting because I remember – I don't remember the full context of this article, but I remember reading articles about the article later. So it was a significant enough article that it made, you know, it made waves and people talked about it for a long time. 
But this was significant in business circles because it sort of explained what you're describing. And this point where you should have done most of that is about the age of 13, (laughs) which is a real – I mean, which is what really stands out to me is this article was not written for 13-year-olds. It was written because business said – this is a problem with people who are working right now. They're they're already adults. They're already employed. And this is a real problem for people. And I'm going to boil down some basic things that are going to help you understand these things. Right. And if you don't understand those things and understand this is what the goal is and this is what the expectation should be, then as a parent, you don't train your children to do these things. And it's really easy to, to ignore what should be happening during those, during those childhood years but if you don't do that right, then you end up – their childhood keeps dragging later and later. And we, as a society, complain about you know that, that we have 26-year-old children. Well, we should also recognize our culpability there and our responsibility there. And if we're not thinking about this is how we're supposed to move them forward, then we shouldn't be surprised when they don't move forward. Now, it is still their responsibility. It's still their sin. But I think that our parenting has a lot to do with it. And if we don't have any expectations to move them forward, they stay where they are. I mean, behind every uh, 40-year-old living in his parents' basement is parents who are letting their 40-year-old live in their basement. And they weren't thinking earlier of, you know, our responsibility is to actually shift them away from them being our responsibility. I mean, that's what the goal of raising children is, is for them to become adults and them to take responsibility. But if we don't think about it that way, then – how in the world do you – then you go, well, they can mess up. We'll have to protect them from that. We have to protect them for this. And the whole helicopter parenting thing is a rejection of this idea that the the goal of raising children is for them to be able to, to deal with things themselves and to not just continue to be your child forever. One of the things that you've said many times just in sermons and talks is that you tell parents they're not raising children. They already have children. You're raising adults. Right. Um, and one of the things that we talked about last time that I think if you don't get anything else from these two episodes, it's the most important thing is there is an expectation that you should mature and progress. And and there's the sense in which the physical is a picture of that, that the physical is you're supposed to be able to look at just what happens through the normal course of a human's life and then say, what does this mean for the spiritual life? But we've got ourselves in a pretty bad feedback loop right now where the church has not been expecting spiritual maturity. And because the church hasn't been expecting spiritual maturity, we're seeing that now reflected in the physical world where, hey, we don't expect there to be maturity in the physical world. And that's how you get young men who become old men living in their basements and you know not really establishing their own name, not making a place for themselves in the world, not providing for a family, not even interested in a family or a job or a career sort of like the basic things that used to be hallmarks of, oh, this person is an adult now. And it's a, it just strikes me as you were saying that. I mean, that is Senator John Fetterman, right? I mean, that is like his whole, we are now exalting that, that somebody was elected as a, a senator. He was first elected as you know, lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, but he had always been cared for by his parents. He lived on, off an allowance. He had never done anything. He dresses like a child. And we're exalting this and saying that somehow this is good. And we should just recognize what a, what a rebuke that is for the church because the church isn't saying it's good to grow up. And I think there's plenty of churches that say it's not good to grow up, that they don't expect the Christians in the church to grow up. And that reflects it, like you said, that reflects itself in the society. 
But we even see that at the highest levels of government. I mean, one of the other things that really happens during this time period that is really useful is you'd say the phrase getting your household in order. And there's this part of it where when people say that, I think it's just a real, it's very easy to gloss over that phrase. And I think one of the things that really gets lost in Christianity is just the idea of order and what order is and how important. We did an episode on discipline and how that like discipline creates order and order allows us to understand the world. And there's this part of it where, you know, order actually is more than just that you, you know, you do things in a, people often think of it as like this, this mechanical soulless thing, you know what I mean? And, and it's really not, I mean, order is, is tied to productivity. Order is tied to actually having something that you're going to accomplish. I mean, an order is very specific to what you're trying to accomplish. The way you order things has, you know what I mean? It's like when you try to order things without any purpose, you know, I mean, I remember a friend of mine told me that his brother really liked organizing, but he said he would do ridiculous things. Like he would organize all his stuff by color. Like he would come in and organize right. his brother's room for him. And he would do, you know, he goes, and now like all my blue stuff is over here and all my yellow. He goes, my room was very organized. He goes, but it had absolutely no purpose other than to be organized by these arbitrary things. And there's this idea where I think people just, people think of order in this way a lot of times. Whereas when you do something that you understand, you know, like if, if somebody who understands cooking, they understand within cooking there isn't there is a very specific. You want these things here. You want this here. You want this position in this way. You know, what I mean, they they get that the order is tied fundamentally to the work, and and tied fundamentally to productivity. I think that's right. the specific part of the work that it's. And so, when you think of getting your household in order, the point is to be ready to move to the next stage, which is to actually have an impact beyond yourself and beyond your family and beyond your household. But if you're out of order in your household, being out of order consumes huge amounts of effort. And so, I mean, like, I'll use my own example. If you look at my tools, they're pretty out of order, and it means it takes longer to do something if you're trying to do something with tools because, you know, you can't find them. You spend time finding them. As opposed to I'm also a computer programmer, and when I do computer programming stuff, I'm a lot more efficient at it, so I have a lot more order, and I'm very strict about order. And if you look at the good computer programmers, they're always very strict about order of names, order of how you structure things, because the more order you get, the more efficiency that you get. And so that's just kind of a basic, I mean, it's really obvious, but if you never get your household in order, you can't affect the people around you. It's an ongoing thing that you do in your life that you continue to create and establish order and you do, because there's a part of it where, I mean, I remember as, you know, we had one kid and you can get by with a certain amount of disorder with one kid. Another kid shows up, you can get by, you start, they start piling up and order starts to really matter. And then as they start to age, very specific aspects of order, you have to like change things. What worked for them whenever all your kids were five and under doesn't work whenever you start having an eight-year-old, a 10-year-old, and they're doing things different in the house. And even the way you approach certain tasks, I mean, all these, like you said, productivity, there are times where things are getting done, but it's incredibly inefficient. And when the inefficiency gets to a certain point, there's times where you go, hang on, we have to we have to change how we're doing these things because it's just not working. We're spending all of our time, we're doing things, but we're not actually accomplishing anything. And I think that's, I do think that's just something fundamental that's been lost is the idea that the purpose of setting up your household is to be productive and to actually allow you to accomplish things. And even if you're working a job outside of the home, it's that you structure your life so that you can, you can do that 
but that when you come into your home, that productivity doesn't suddenly cease. It doesn't just turn off. It's not that you go there and you be productive and you come back and it all ends. One thing that I've seen, especially in homeschool circles, is that people can also make not the end an increase in productivity, but the end order itself. Right. And that becomes, you can get so fixed on order that you end up not being productive. And so the point is to order it for productivity, not to order it for the sake of ordering. I mean, there's a lot of women. I used to run a homeschool group and in running that homeschool group, there were a lot of women that were like, my house isn't as clean as I want. And it's like, well, are you teaching your children character or is your house as clean as you want? You're going to have to make choices. The order is to increase productivity. The end is not the order. The order is a means to an end. And productivity is messy. There's that verse from Proverbs, and my wife has written it in chalk on the wall because it's a good thing for a wife to remember about, you know, where where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of the ox. It's it's a verse I quote all the time about my office. (laughs) (laughs) You're not supposed to keep the oxen in your office. I mean, like a lot of times when people think about the time period of setting up your household, first of all, we move it way later in life. The other part is, is people start putting in immediately getting married. And and, these, and I'm not saying that marriage marriage frequently did used to come earlier than we think about it today. But there's this part of it where you do not add a wife into something that has no purpose. And that's and so today, we've if you don't have a purpose, if you don't establish this purpose and this productivity, you don't have a need for a wife other than just your pure physical need. And God created you to be more than just your physical need. And so there's this part of it where, I mean, just your, and really, I mean, just your body's like lustful desire. I I shouldn't say lustful in certain ways, but it is. It is a desire that you have that God's created. And it's not just for that, that God's actually created you to actually have dominion and to do these things. And you should have desires for that as well. And if you're not accomplishing those things, how do you add a wife to that? How do you say this wife would be a good fit into your nothing? And I think that's very common for men to think about. And when you look at it, right, if you look at the stages, the way I laid them out, which is, you know, the childishness is about self-control and about dealing with yourself. And and then you move on so that you can be a blessing to others. Well, if your wife is just for sexual satisfaction, that's just about yourself. You're still acting like a child. Right. And the problem is we have a lot of, you know, you look at the divorce rate in the U.S., it's like 50%. And that's because there's a lot of men that act like children, and that it's all about them. And when it's all about them, guess what? They'll end up in divorce. And, and the again, the feedback loop rears its ugly yep. head here because the same thing can be said of children. And you look at the number of people who think about their children that way, men and women, who think that, oh, my child is here to satisfy something in me. And, and it's the reason that I decide to have children is because I want to have particular feelings when I'm ready for it at a particular time. And that's how they think about their children and their their view of their children is something that's satisfying their own needs and not that, okay, I'm going to have these children that I then am going to be expecting them to progress through stages of maturity and going out and right, being productive. And, never did. Right. And it's even the helicopter pairing, this idea of we have to have pure safety for our children. I mean, that's the same thing. Well, I'd, I'd just be so upset if something happened to my children. Well, that's a different view than saying, well, God appointed us to take dominion 
and God gave me children to take dominion, and I'm supposed to train them to take dominion. And guess what? When you take dominion, you know, it's not just the ox that makes a mess, but ox can hurt you too. And you can't really do that without getting hurt or having the risk of getting hurt. And so I think a lot of the modern parenting where we have, I mean, we're just insane about our safety, where it's just completely irrational. It's not rightly balancing risks or anything. And you look at that and you go, well, why is that? Well, because the parent doesn't want to have to deal with sorrow. It has nothing to do with the child. It's actually the parents going, I'm going to protect this child because I couldn't handle it if something happened to my my prized little child. Is there a is there a spiritual analog to that? To that particular attitude of of risk aversion with a child? Is Hebrews how, six. how are we bringing that into the church? Hebrews six. Hebrews six says that you know Hebrews five says that not many of you are teachers and that you should be teachers by now. And then Hebrews 6 says, move off of the foundational doctrines. And then basically the writer of Hebrews makes the argument that, hey, you know, when God's not going to lose any of his. So if they're his, pour the water on it and it'll produce briars or it will produce, it will produce good fruit and you'll find out. And guess what? A lot of churches don't do that. They don't do that because they'll go, but people will leave. Well, that's exactly the same as the, the mother going, well, I couldn't let him do that. He might get hurt. Instead of going, well, no, the purpose of the church is to actually be a gathering of believers. So we should be willing to do that. The purpose of the family is to take dominion. So we should be willing to do that. But yet, I think, to me, that seems like the spiritual parallel. I mean, I think there's probably a lot of them, too. You know, if you're saying, well, I'm I'm in this church with this, you know, famous you know sound reform pastor well i i wouldn't want to go to this little church with you know this pastor he's only been a a elder a couple years and there's only a small group of people there and you know what's going to happen what if he becomes a heretic i mean that's you know one where you could be worrying about a perceived risk and saying i can't do that um you know and then there's also the thing of like where people say i need to send my kids to public school so they can be missionaries and I'm wor- and I'm not worried that they're going to fall away because I'm going to trust that I have enough. You know, they've, they've learned enough that they're going to be missionaries. Well, I'm not saying that. That's a good idea because um, you shouldn't, you know, your 10-year-old, your, even your 18-year-old is not equipped, especially if they're not a professing believer. They're not equipped to be a missionary. But there are points where you, need, where you do send, you know, believers out in situations where they're among a lot of non-believers. They're among people who are going to try to tear them down and destroy their faith. Um, where it is a point where you say, yes, this is a risk. You know, I perceive this as a risk, but it's a risk that we have to take to do the work of God to be faithful to his commands. And if you read like First Peter 2 and 3, I mean, God very clearly ties those two together, right? I mean, he goes, not just that you're in some spiritual risk, it's you're in physical risk. If you're beaten, make sure it's not that you're beaten for your own fault, but make sure that you're beaten because of the word of God and then rejoice over being beaten. Well, you know, God's tying them together and going, you know, hey, the risk, you're not supposed to be risk avoidance. That's not the goal. The goal is to actually cause the glory of God to be seen. And an unbelieving child, you know, I mean, we have, when we'll go to the abortion clinic, the children will stand out there and hold signs. And, you know, they, I have, a lot of unbelieving children. I don't have them like go and, and preach the pre-training like that. But there's a risk. I mean, there's a part of it where, I mean, there have been times where people have gotten more and more hostile over the last with their attitudes, with their cars, where you're sitting there going, they might swerve off the road. 
they really might do that. And that is a real possibility. I mean, I don't, I have no reason to sit here and go, I, I know someone's going to do this. But it's also, it also seems worthwhile to still go. And I don't know any way to go and stand there and do that without taking that risk. And it's a reasonable risk to take. And, you know what I mean? And, and it's a huge testimony, I mean, right? In the sense that you're telling your children there's things to live for. Right. So many people in the world, they don't tell their children there's anything to live for. Right. Right. Because if you say there's nothing worth taking risk for, you're saying there is nothing to live for. Because in the end, if there's nothing to die for, there's nothing to live for. Nothing's important enough. Nothing matters. And so even that simple fact of having them hold that sign, that's a testimony to them that there are more important things than them, which is what our society has lost because nobody goes into young adulthood or not say nobody. I don't mean that, but, but it's definitely the minority in our culture. Now people just stay children. They never go, we're supposed to be advancing. We're supposed to be setting up a household. And again, like you see, I think you see it in the elected officials we elect. I think you see it in the, you know, in the, the divorce rate, you see it all kinds of places where we just don't have an expectation that people are actually supposed to grow up. So a verse, a scripture verse that addresses this is in First John 2, and it addresses, uh, you know, young, young men in particular, it says this, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. So if we if we go through sort of some of the basic things that happen in the physical life during this time, you know, you get a job, you establish a career, you get married, you you start getting your household in order, meaning establishing a level and expectation of productivity, establishing the patterns for your household. You start having children, you start raising children, all these things happening during that time frame, or they ought to be happening normally, physically. What are the spiritual analogs for that? You know, what are, what kind of maturity are we expecting for a Christian who's in that young adult stage? They're not, they're, they're off of milk, so they're eating solid food. There, you know, what what does it mean for a Christian to be productive right, at so, this stage of life? And and you know, as you're naming all those things, all those things are a lot of work, right? I mean, because the passage here says, you know, I write to you, young men, because you've overcome the wicked one, and I've written to you because you are strong, young men, you are strong. And so, you know, first of all, it is a time of labor. For the church, because when you look at the church, the church is the parallel of the household. So in terms of you're doing the work of the church, you're doing the work to try to get the church in order, to get it where it should be. And you're willing to to labor and that you're willing to make those sacrifices. And you'll grow beyond that. But that's where you kind of start. And, And we forget that, you know, when you're an elder you have to be really careful to rightly harness the the strength of youth because really the church has youth in it. And if it doesn't harness the strength of youth, it ends up not doing some of the heavy lifting. You're you know, talking about both physical and spiritual. I'm talking youth, about physical right? and spiritual. And it's interesting, right? I'm, I've built buildings before and I'm in the process of building a building. And 
when you think of the what requires the most strength for a building, there's no question what requires the most strength for the building, and that's the foundation. On a foundation, everything's heavy. Cinder blocks are heavy. Concrete's heavy. Dirt's heavy. Digging the dirt out right. Everything is heavy. And as you go higher, in a lot of ways, it gets lighter. And that's the same idea here is that building those foundation, it's the heavy lifting. And that's what young men should be thinking of. And young women have that role with their children in particular, right? That's what it says in First Timothy 2, is they have in particular to do that heavy lifting with their children to make sure that their young children know who God is, right? That they follow after in the faith, that they, that, you know, that's, that's why women, you know, are to give birth and to train children. That's why men are allowed to have authority. And so when you look at this, you kind of have that picture that they should be doing, doing the heavy lifting and not, not. The, the directing, not the, the things that require you to, to have wisdom that came with years. There's lots of, of uh, redundant labor or repetitive labor that is part of how a church operates. And that's kind of the, what you're learning to do physically in that time frame. And that's what you should be doing spiritually in that time frame. Is that up till 13 or is that is – that, No, from 13 okay, to okay, I want 30. Because sure. there's a part of it where part of that is also sort of starting to establish maybe a ministry within the church, right, or a place within the church well, where you – it would be starting to do that, but then 30 to 50 is when you should be thinking about that's when you should be doing something that affects beyond the church. Right. And so when you th- – I mean, and, you know, some of the things that, that you should think about, like hospitality is is heavy lifting, right? I mean, it's – that if the church is hospitable like it should be to each other and to people outside, that's a lot of both physical work, but it's also spiritual work, evangelism, physical work, and spiritual work, right? I mean, these are the kind of things that you should be expecting, you know, in spiritually young adults to be out there doing. And a lot of times you see people that are young that really have a, you know, they just saved and they want to go out and evangelize when they probably need to know the gospel better before they should. But young men who have the strength, they should be doing those kind of things. And it's very easy to, to, you know, this is, you know, the work of the, you know, we've shifted it, right, for evangelism. We go, it's the work of the elder. No, it's the work it's of the, the elder or the incredibly young. Well, I mean, if, right. you, if you look at the physical picture here of it's, it's these, these young couples that are having babies, you know, that's some of the most intense, at least time demand on parenting is just – keeping the babies alive, you know, keep the tiny humans alive is happening right then. And it, you realize in the physical picture, it's not the elders who are doing that. The right. elders are not the ones who are giving the babies milk, who are teaching them, here's how to eat meat. Let me cut your meat up into tiny bites. It's the you. elders that like give them rides on skin scares and stuff. <laughs> yeah, it is. There you go. <laughs> but, but, it's like, but if you think, okay, so in the church, if I'm in that position where, okay, I've got a level of maturity, I'm starting to look and say, what can I do outside myself? I'm, I've, I've got the self-control that comes with, with childhood and now I'm looking for. Then, okay, who are the spiritual babies around that I could come around and help feed? Because that burden doesn't have to go to the elders. Right. But we, that's not the way that we've been taught. We've, and we should not go to the elders. We, right? I mean, we think that the elders are the ones who are supposed to be doing that. And that picture that picture's even there when they established the, 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 um, the diaconate or the protodiaconate in Acts. When the, tur- the church is first starting, it's like, hey, look, the, the apostles say, our job is not to wait on tables. Find somebody else to do that. We have other duties. 
And it's really clear in Ephesians 4, right, where, where you know, Paul's writing and he says, look, God gave you apostles, he gave you evangelists, he gave you pastors, he gave you teachers, he gave you, you know, he gave you all these roles for, to edify the believers for the work of the ministry. And now, I mean, and that's kind of what we're saying here is that the point of the elder is he's supposed to be directing the strength of the young men and the prime of life men so that they actually accomplish the things. And instead what we go is they should be doing it. And it's really interesting because, you know, we'll read the verse later for elders where it says you're not allowed to. You're not allowed to pick it up. You're not allowed to take that animal and throw it onto the the wood. That's once you turn 50. This is the older priest, right? Right. Right. Once they kind of retire from priesthood, but they're not entirely retired from priesthood. But they're not allowed to do these things anymore. And I think the church now goes, oh, visiting the sick. Well, call the pastor. Somebody's in the hospital. Call the pastor. Let him go visit the sick. And there's lots of churches. Oh, there's there's an unbeliever that we talked to. We should invite him to church so that the pastor can witness to him. I mean, this is all contrary to, to what a healthy church looks like. That is simply not what it looks like. What it looks like is those who are more mature in the faith are training the younger ones so that they actually do the heavy lifting, the repetitive work, all the things that we've been talking about. And, you know, if you look, we look back at that uh, verse from First John, you know, it talks about some of the things that the young men have in place already, that they have the word of God abiding in you and uh, you've overcome the wicked one. So there's some baseline things that are set in place, that they have a working knowledge of the word of God. They have that strength that comes from that. They've overcome uh, the wicked one. And not that those things are over, not that there's no struggles to come, not that there's no word of God that still needs to be learned, but there is a baseline where they can now be uh, doing doing the work and, and helping others rather than just, uh, just you know, getting the groundwork set for themselves. And I think, you know, we kind of talked about this, right? Infancy is this idea of, of learning the word, consuming the word internalizing the word, which is very much what he's saying. The word abides in you, right? You've gone through infancy, and then you've overcome the wicked one. The childhood is, you know, there's a lot of Christians that never make it through childhood. The, you know, the the persecution comes. Somebody says something nasty to them, so they fall away. Or, you know, the, uh, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, they grow up. They hit 13. They're more interested in money, and they're more interested in girls, and they are interested in the word of God. And spiritually, there's parallels there. And so there's a lot of – so when it says overcome the wicked one, I do think that that's kind of like the spiritual equivalent of you've gone through childhood. You've, you've learned to control yourself. You've learned to take, take care and protect yourself from these temptations that come from the world. And I think that we have a lot of people in churches that, that there's no expectation that they've actually – breach being a young man, where they've actually overcome the wicked one, where they actually, the word of God abides in them, right? I mean, it's, you know, they, they don't read the word of God. So how do you say the word of God abides in them? And they don't, they don't have victory over sin. Before you can go out there and start witnessing to others, you should have some victory over sin. We never have perfect victory, but you should actually go, you know, I've, I've had to say things in situations that I thought it would cost me something to say it, and I said it, right? I mean, that's the basic, what it looks like to have overcome the wicked one. I mean, one of the things that, as you're talking about, I remember when we went through this, like at the family summit, and we were talking about these issues. When you think about this, where in the spiritual side, where all of the church is working, I mean, like, you know, as soon as you move past infancy, you're starting to do some work in the church. 
it's, you're starting to be productive in the church and you get in the, a little bit older, it changes in your mind what a deacon is and what a deacon is supposed to do because there's this part of it where a lot of times people think, oh, deacon's a servant, they're the ones who serve. And yes, they're a servant, but they're much more making sure that people are working on the right things, making sure that work is doing what it needs to be done. I mean, this is, you know. Making sure that the church is caring for the poor the way they ought to. Right. Making sure, like I said, and with the, you mentioned the proto-diaconate there where the real distinction there was the real reason they were needed was not that a lot of work wasn't being done. It was that, like you said, there were. The elders couldn't be the elders. And they were being, people were potentially being, they were being biased in their, in their love for one another. And so it was just, like you said, making sure it's actually being done the way it should be done which is a huge difference than how we think about deacons in a general sense today. And the reason for that shift is because we've gotten everything out of whack. So the next uh, stage of life that we want to talk about is, uh, is the prime of life, which we're defining as on, on, the fr- on the physical side from 30 to 50. And that's coming from Numbers uh, chapter 4, where it says this. And Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of the congregation numbered the sons of the Kohathites by their families and by their father's house from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old. Everyone who entered the service for work in the tabernacle of meeting and those who were numbered by their families were 2,750. And so there you have the, the term for the priests uh, defined from 30 to 50. And like was mentioned before, that matches uh, Christ beginning his uh, public ministry at the age of 30. And I, I think it's worth, when we think about this, understand that you know there is this picture that it happens in physical. There's a picture that it happens in a Christian's life. And it's worthwhile considering also that there's a picture that it happens in churches. You know, when a church is just planted, there is there needs to become commonality through the word and there's people getting to know each other. And through the word, they right, it's the ministry of the word so that they bind together as a people. And then they write the parallel to infancy. And then they have this period where they're going through childhood where they just have to get the church in order. They have to deal with the things that, you know, so that the church can run. But then we're supposed to start to affect people around us. And I think a lot of churches never make it through that stage. They never make it through the stage that we're actually supposed to be doing something beyond ourselves that actually have an effect. But that, that picture of going to 30 is that's where you're supposed to, especially your household's in order, and you're supposed to having a big effect outside. And we've kind of got reached the point in the church where, where the modern church in America doesn't think the church is really supposed to do anything. It just You're just there to worship God. You're just there to go through the motions. You're just there to, to encourage one another. And there's not this idea that we're supposed to be out there and actually declaring who God is, causing his, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, which is what we're supposed to be doing. And instead we go, well, we're, we're worshiping God here. Well, no, that, that's because we're never getting into adulthood. The way we talk about going to church is, is all wrapped up with that idea. We talk about, I go to church, you know, I did, was I fed by church? Yeah, the, the worship was really good this week. I really felt fed. We treat church like consumable. It's something that we go to participate in, not any different than going to a movie theater or a sporting event or something like that, as opposed to it's the place where you go to get equipped to then go do the work. I mean, and not, and as you were saying that, I was obviously thinking, or more like a lazy child in a house who just goes from meal to meal 
You know what I mean? He doesn't really right. do anything in that. I mean, this and this is part of it is the reason why we think of which inter- is like a baby, right? Right. The babies do nothing. All they do is go from meal to meal. They make messes that other people have to clean up, and that's like a lot of people in churches. Yep. All they're there for is the next meal. And my guess is that there's there's some churches where the leadership is just perfectly happy with that. Oh, they think yeah, that's no their question. job. And there's other churches that probably feel the tension of, oh, well, we want to be doing more, but we don't have anybody that's mature enough. We're not exactly sure how to make them mature. And, and I do think, I mean, I've heard this many times, which is basically churches, you have the 80-20 rule or the 90-10 rule, which is, you know, you have the people who come like Wednesday night. Those are the people that are serious that come to prayer. And then you have everybody else that's kind of the 90% that they just show up on Sunday morning. And the only people that are actually going to do anything in the church are the 10%. So those 10%, the people who show up Wednesday night for prayer, they're serious and you can get work out of them. Everybody else, they're just there to fill their belly. And that's I've heard that from many pastors over the years. And this is just – but they – the response to that is to go to the people and say, "Grow up, right. you're or, just or, or get out." Or, well, you have and, to, and, you, know you have I mean? to grow up, and you put pressure on them to grow up, and they'll get out. Right? Now, you don't and, need to and, tell right. them to get out. I understand, out. <laughs> I, but I just mean I wanted to say that specifically because you don't have to tell them to get out, but you have to be willing to lose them. And Hebrews six is exactly saying that you have to be willing to let them be seen as briars. You have to be willing to let them see that they're not servants of God that they're there to serve themselves, that God is not their Lord, their own desires are their Lord. And you have to be willing to say, yeah, you don't have to say the words, but you have to put the pressure and people will flee the pressure, which is the argument of Hebrews 6. Part of the motivation for going through it like this is in our congregation, we've been preaching through some of the early books in the Bible. We've been going through Exodus and Leviticus. And one of the things that as you go through this that, really strikes you is that being a priest is work. It's hard work. You think about the just the effort that's involved with keeping a fire going all the time and dealing with ashes from that fire. And then you've got at least two sacrifices that you're doing every single day. You're probably doing more. So and and then they have to take these animals and they have to throw these animals up on this high platform and they've got to slaughter them and skin them and clean the entrails and and it's hard and in many ways very unpleasant work and it but it's really work and then they've got to go wash the dishes when they're done with it and then there's all of the levites who are associated with the priesthood who have to put up and take down the tabernacle and that's some some you know some of these are 20 foot long boards that are gilded and so this is this is heavy labor that they're doing and that's what this verse that we we just read is talking about that 30 to 50 age is that's the age in which you're doing this really hard work but it's also very public work this is the sort of work that everybody could see if you were a priest you even had special garments that went along with it there's you're not you're not in the background when you're doing this kind of labor. And there's people who are coming to you because they know, oh, you're the person who can do this for me. You are the person who can make that sacrifice that God says that I need to do. God says that I'm supposed to come to you and interact with you because that's what pleases him. And I think it's important as you were talking about that, that, you know, as we talked, that we are priests. We really, and and people... A lot of people have that idea, oh, we are priests. 
but they don't actually really cement it into what that means. And I think as you were talking, you were putting that emphasis on the physicality of it. Because I think one of the dangers is, is when we flip between the physical and the spiritual, we think of the spiritual as like this light, airy thing. And the picture for the work that the church will be doing, the pure, raw, physical, earthly picture of it, was really hard, intense physical labor. And there's this part, I mean, the phrase I've always said to myself in my head is, when you, walk in, when, you, when you walk in the spirit, you don't leave your body to do it. You know what I mean? It's like there's this, and people have this idea, oh, you have to walk in the spirit. It's like, right, but when you think about the physical and the spirit, spiritual, there's still, you still do it here. You still do, it's still real work, and it's still really hard. And while we're not killing animals, it can be incredibly unpleasant work at times. It can be really difficult work at you times. You have no idea, Charles. <laughs> I'm sure, I mean, <laughs> The growing up, just my understanding of that phrase, like the priesthood of all believers, was that there's no need for a mediator between you and God. You have direct access to God like the priests have. You can go in and out of the presence of God like they could go in and out of the tabernacle and the temple. And that's true. And that's a very small part of what it meant to be a priest. There was a whole lot of other things that came along with that with that privilege and that access. There were lots of responsibilities that God said you had on you. And I think, you know, when you, we should recognize why Roman Catholicism is so popular. And one of the big reasons it's so popular is the only person who is a priest is the guy who stands up front. Nobody else is a priest. They don't have to do any work. They're not expected to do any work. All they have to do is pay money. But how many Baptist churches are different? How many Presbyterian churches are different? How many, you know, how many Reformed churches are different where they actually go, no, 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 no. You're a priest, not just the elder that's preaching. Yes, he's a priest too, but you're a priest. And that means that there's labor for you to do. And the elder is supposed to be doing what the retired priest did, and you're supposed to be doing what the priests do. And that starts to be that that changes things. And it and it starts it starts making you understand why all the previous steps were necessary. Because you can't have that. If you don't take the pre, I mean, and, and understand throughout this, and we've mentioned this in the other episode. If you've listened and you go, "Oh my goodness, I've done things wrong," I mean, every single person in this room is going, "I haven't used my time in the past periods of my life as efficiently as I should have," and God is merciful. The purpose of this is to turn towards it. What will you do tomorrow? Will you go? Oh no! Or will you just go? Well, I've already wasted a lot of time. What's what's another twenty years? I, I mean that. But I mean, but but if you don't deal with those things, if you don't think about them in that way, you know the different. You, know, you said now we have twenty six year old children. When I was growing up, maybe it was twenty one year old children. And the question is, is am I moving it so that the next generation grows up earlier than I did, or am I? Or am I helping push it out further? Because it's going to move one way or the other. And it will only move that that people will start doing that, on a, not on an individual basis. Obviously, they could. But the only way that the society will start to have that expectation is if the church does it. If the church has that expectation that our point of maturing is not just to be able to you know sit there and maybe donate more money to the church. The idea of maturing is you now get more responsibility. And we see this in physical ways. And people – they look at a a 50-year-old that, you know, is, like, not ta- taking care of his wife, not taking care of his children. He has a sports car because, you know, he made money, and instead of spending it on things that are useful, he tries to buy the most fancy thing that they can. And we go, that guy's just a child. 
But yeah, we don't say the same thing in the church. And until we start to say the same thing in the church, I mean, Paul's, you know, Paul probably preached Hebrews and then somebody wrote it down. I mean, he's going, you should be teachers. You should be at the point where you are affecting other people, and yet you're not. And as long as we do that, that's what our society is going to continue to go. So it's really easy for us to complain about the society, but the way to fix it is to fix the church. And there's a part of it where we know that these things are true in one sense, like they've existed in our culture in a physical sense, because look at somebody who was on a political path to be a senator one day. They had to be at certain of these stages along the way. You were never Unless gonna, you're John Fetterman. <laughs> unless I mean, but I mean, but there was there was this there was this predefined path that, you know, when you were when you were a young man, you were involved in things, you would go and you would just do whatever work they needed you to do, and you were learning the ropes of things. And then you ran for your first little local office, and it might have been dog catcher or so you know, I mean it could have been it could have been almost anything, but you run for your early offices and you have these places and you get on the county commission. I mean, and you move up through these things and you're and like I said, you're moving outside and you're being responsible for more people and you're showing that you can think about the I mean, we understand that this track the way of thinking about this in the world exists, but we just want to pretend like it's only for that space. But we're working really hard to reject that because the church has already rejected that. Right. right? We go, President Obama was a state senator for a little bit, didn't really do much, had no history. He then becomes a federal senator for two years. and All of a sudden, he's the president of the United States which is exactly the opposite. Right. Or you're Donald Trump. You make a lot of money at business, mostly by selling your name, by celebrity, by manipulating the media, and now all of a sudden you get to be president. I mean, right. you can know both sides of the yep. aisle. Right? Well, at least we're back to Biden, so we're, we're headed in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> he has his problems too. But one of the problems that he doesn't have, which is what everybody's accusing him of, is they act like he doesn't know how government works. No, Donald Trump didn't know how government works. Joe Biden knows exactly how government works. And so it's very easy to, you know, one of Biden's weaknesses, not that he didn't come up through the ranks. He sure came up through the ranks. And so, but yet we think we exalt these people that skip everything. Like Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell had no purpose of running for president because he was a pastor. I mean, he knew nothing about government. Now, if he was a wiser pastor, if he like actually was getting people to do things. and so, But all of a sudden, he comes up with moral majority, and he's trying to control the civil sphere without any of that work. And I think the Christians think we should be able to skip. Well, no, that's, that's not how it should work. Any more than you go, oh, that, that infant, well, they we put a, you know, our, our three-year-old, we put a suit on, a tuxedo on him, so now he's fit to be married. That's what we basically right. do in the church. You know, we've been talking about the priesthood of the believer and how that that means you're supposed to be doing the work. We've forgotten what the work is. The church is not just to be like in a holy huddle. They're not just supposed to be having their house in order. That's a good thing, but they're supposed to do more than that. And Daniel 2, 34 and 35 tells us what it is. You watch while a stone was cut without hands, which struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is what the church is supposed to be doing, and it's the kingdoms of this world is this stone that is the church of God, the kingdom of God, that is supposed to destroy all the kingdoms of the world and make them like chaff of the summer threshing floor, and it becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. 
And yet we go, the church isn't supposed to do anything except just kind of be it with itself. As long as the church doesn't have the idea that it's actually supposed to be filling the world, it's actually supposed to be destroying the kingdoms of the earth, it's actually supposed to be through the preaching of the word, right? It's a stone that's cut without hands. It's not using a physical sword. It's using a spiritual sword. But we're supposed to be destroying kingdoms. And we go, well, you know, at least— Excuse me. At least our church is healthy. Our, you know, everybody gets along. Everybody's, oh, we're learning such good things. It's helping us live our lives without saying, you were saved to further the kingdom of God. You were saved to be a warrior for God. And we've recorded another episode on this. I don't know when it will be published. But one of the things that we learned as we went through Leviticus is the very first thing that God orders Aaron. As, once Aaron is consecrated as high priest, his first command from God is it is your job to tell the difference between the clean and the unclean and the holy and the unholy. And there's this part of it where, I mean, we've forgotten that this is the church's, that, that this is one of the ways that, because part of it is these kingdoms of the earth, they're also idolatry. I mean, the reason mm-hmm. why men follow men rather than obeying God, the reasons why men follow after those who would tell them what to do, which is not what God would have them do, is because of the idolatry of man, because of the idolatry of ourselves. And there is this part of it where the church should be destroying that because, like you said, the sacrifices were a really public thing. They, were, they weren't like something that happened. They didn't happen inside the Holy of Holies. They didn't happen inside the holy place. They happened out in front of everyone. They happened out in the courtyard. And so, I mean, there's this part of it where what the, the work of the priest is to be where the world is seeing it, and their work was telling you, this is what's holy, this is what's not holy, this is what's clean, this is what's not clean. And that changes the culture. It changes everything. It, 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 it's a very different view of the church than we're going to go out and we're just going to go preach. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with going out and preaching. But it's, it's not just the preaching that does it. It's not just the deliberate preaching. Right, and we should have an expectation that the preaching will do this because the kingdom does get conquered by the sword, but or the sword of the word. But it's also the, the believers doing the ministry, which means that we take the word out into the public, into the, to the public places, and not just go, oh, you know, people will be offended, so we're not going to talk about that, or it might affect my job, or it might, you know, and I'm not saying there's not times where you shouldn't talk on your job. There are, because... You're not paid to, you know, preach the word, but we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. And I think a lot of Christians are very ashamed of the gospel because they won't speak of the truths of God if it offends other people. Professing Christians are ashamed of the gospel. And so, you know, the way the kingdoms get destroyed is the way they've always been destroyed is by shining light and darkness so that the darkness flees. That's how it works. And can't just be elders that do this. The people have to do it. The people that are mature believers in the church have to do that if the church is going to be successful and there's and, what, this, and the job that it's been given to do. And I think there's this part of it where, I mean, where we look and, I mean, a natural reaction is to go, what does that look like? And part of this is, is if we start changing the way we think about each of these stages, it, it affects it. It affects everything because there's a part of it where if you learn how to speak and you learn how to speak correctly, when you learn how to think logically and you've got the word of God with you and you do all, you know, you do the things you're supposed to do when you're a child, when you get to the point where you're supposed to go into the world and someone says something, you're prepared to do that. And the reason why I think the church is so, is because people go out there and they haven't, they haven't prepared themselves. They haven't done all these things. And so then they walk out there and they go, I don't know what to do. 
because they're like a you know like a child like walking out into a warfare and going now go to war and the child goes I don't know how to do war yet and I think we've just this is we need to recognize where we are and we need to recognize why we've gotten there and how do you turn it around I think one of the ways you turn around is you go and you you read Peter and you read him really honestly when he says you're a, a royal priesthood and then you think that Peter is not writing that without any context He's writing it as somebody who has lived his entire life seeing actual priesthood. You know, he's seen the slaughter of animals, but he's writing it with millennia of priesthood in the background. And then he brings that and says, this is what you are as Christians. And you know, everything in that Old Testament related to the temple and the tabernacle was not a real thing in and of itself. It was a picture of something that was yet to come. And then, and then that's, in a sense, a lot of that's now. That's us now. We're we're the real priests. Mm-hmm. Those priests who are slaughtering animals, you know, they were, Le- they were Levitical pictures. priests. He's saying that we're priests. On they the were shadows, Melchizedek, which is the right. royal priesthood. So we have a greater priesthood than Levi ever had. You know, this this is the picture. And so, yeah, those are shadows, and they're shadows of a reduced priesthood. When we say a royal priesthood. By definition, that's a greater priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. So, but but go back and if, if just read what the priests did and think, is my entire life structured like this, where I'm about the business of God? You can just start there and then say, where do I fit in the body? What is God, what, what are my skills and talents that, you know, there were lots of different jobs that priests could have had. And my guess is that not all of them did all of the jobs. At all the time. Well, you talk about the morning and evening sacrifice. Well, probably one or two of them did that. And there were times that there were probably 100,000 priests, and yet maybe not that many, but 50,000 priests. And yet there were two of them that were doing that. But there was a lot of other work, and it would have been specialized, like you're saying. Even thinking about how the fire has to be kept burning. Somebody has to uphold the night shift. It's probably Mm -hmm. a pretty lonely job, but there's a priest whose job was to keep the fires burning at night while everybody else is sleeping. You know? One or two, staying awake, keeping the fire going so that it's ready for the morning sacrifice. I mean, there's a part of this that just what it really makes me think of is as we've gone through Leviticus, you're thinking about what the priests do is a lot of the sacrifices. We think of a sacrifice like for salvation, you know, like, or, you know, we think of like the burnt offering of the, you know, the sin, but there were sacrifices that were peace offerings. There were sacrifices, there was, and one of the things we forget is that when God makes an image, he makes it work in the world. And so there were people who came to the priest and said, how do I make, how do I get right with God? There were priests, people who came to the priest and said, what do I need to do to deal with X? And I think Christians forget this. A lot of times Christians are the people that people come to and ask questions and they don't always ask it blatantly. Sometimes they even come to you and go, but they, they, they talk to you and they're coming to you and you don't even realize it, but God directs them to someone who they know who believes something because their question is, how do I deal with this? Mm-hmm. And God structures it because you are a priest. That's part of your role is to be ready to answer. And how often do we just totally blow those encounters? We just, you know what I mean? We, we give them some, some halfway answer. We, you know, and I just think we forget that God has made it so that the people in the world, when they see someone who actually knows something and understands something or they believe is something, they treat them like a priest often. And 
God's saying, do you understand this is what you've been prepared for? This is what you're, this is what you're supposed to be doing. And this is, I mean, I think an example of that is Lot. I mean, he's someone who's, who was sitting out in the gate of Sodom. And right. you know, the implication there is that he was something, someone who people would come to and say, you know, judge between between us, things like that. Now, there's a part to it that Lot missed, which was we do have a role to say repent. And it right. seems like he was not saying repent. Um, but, but the fact that um, we need to point them to, you know, Eternal repentance doesn't mean that there's no place to say, well, here's justice in this situation. Here's what's right and here's what's wrong. It's it's Jesus, too. This is in his public ministry. Why did crowds come to him? And they say it's because he speaks with authority and not as the scribes. There, there's all these people that should have had authority, but they don't. They, they're speaking out both sides of their mouths, giving half answers. And Jesus is the one who says, this is what God says. And they follow him because of that. And so when we think about what this looks like now about those 30 to 50 years, everybody should be, you should understand that if you're a Christian, you have a duty to be fruitful, right? I kind of referenced before the passage about, you know, the, the sower goes out to sow, some falls on the wayside, it gets snatched up by the devil, some falls upon shallow earth and persecution comes and it burns up and some falls among the weeds, which is a picture of of you know the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, and then the rest, the real stuff, produces thirtyfold, sixtyfold, a hundredfold. So when we think of that picture of the prime of life, this isn't like a minor thing. Everybody, every real Christian, as they mature, and God kills some early so that they don't. But any real Christian, if they mature, they will produce fruit. And if they're going to produce fruit, that means they have some kind of ministry. And that doesn't mean that you go create a ministry with a name or, you know, I'm nothing like that, right? The ministry can be you go to the abortion clinic, you do this, you do that. But everybody's supposed to be producing fruit for the gospel, and we've lost that idea. And everybody's supposed to hit the prime of life stage because that's when you do that producing. It's the it's the parable of the talents. You think about mm-hmm. these last two stages, if you will. It seems like there's an analog between the when the talents are given. This is the the young adult. It's the testing. It's a hey, here's a job for you. Let's see how you do with that. And and they're given this job, and some of them are productive. And then the master comes back, and he doesn't say, "Oh, great job, have a vacation." The response is, "Great job. Here's more work. Go rule over some cities." Right. And that's what's happening with this transition. Is okay. You proved yourself. In that earlier stage, you established your household. You showed you had some order. You showed you could be productive beyond just yourself. I think now, that's the parable of the miners, though, not the talents, where they get the cities. <laughs> all right. Not to be Staying picky, corrected. And so then the, let's talk about the last stage, since I'm the only one old enough to be in it. I'll, I'll read the passage from Numbers 8, 24 through 26. This is what pertains to the Levites from 25 years old and above when may enter to perform service in the work of the tabernacle meeting. At the age of 50 years, they must cease performing this work and shall work no more. They may minister with their brethren in the tabernacle meeting to attend to needs, but they themselves shall do no work. Thus you shall do to the Levites regarding their duties. Now it does kind of give this idea that you know, you're not allowed to actually do the work of the priest until you're 30, but obviously at 25 they started to train to do it so that at 30 they could actually kick in and do it. But once they hit 50, it says they're not supposed to do any work. 
And it's really important for us to, to recognize, and that doesn't mean that they don't minister. That means that they're not supposed to be taking that, you know, the, the, you know, the fat off of the entrails and lugging them up and throwing them over onto the fire. That there's a point where you go, the next generation needs to do this. It's not my generation to do it anymore. I have a different generation. I'm still supposed to minister. I'm still supposed to attend to needs. I'm still supposed to do things. But that heavy lifting is no longer my role anymore. You think about all those other things that the priesters told to deal with. And I think that this is probably those kinds of cases that they're allowed to still deal with. You know, somebody has a spot that may or may not be leprous. They're supposed to go to the priest and get it diagnosed. And then depending on the diagnosis, there's, they get a treatment prescribed or, or the leprosy, you know, so probably some kind of mold or fungus could affect their house. The priest is supposed to go and look at the house and do an inspection and then say, all right, here's what you need to do. And then I'll come back in a set period of time and we'll see if it's cleansed or not. They're supposed to do marriage counseling. If you think that your spouse has cheated on you, you're supposed to go to the priests and the priest will say, all right, what are the circumstances? Let's walk through that. Here's what you need to do. There's just all of these ways that there are things that you are supposed to appeal to the priests for that aren't sacrificial. And one of the big ones that you didn't mention is they're supposed to teach the law to Israel. I mean, that is like, and so in my mind, you know, you look at the same, the same picture, right, in, the, in these stages of life that the elders of the church are the ones that are supposed to be teaching the law of Israel. So I think that no longer are they doing all these sacrifices and all this work related to the sacrifices, but they teach, they judge, right, because you can also, if, if a case is too hard for the civil magistrate, they're supposed to go to the Levites to have them judge, and if they, they then have to do whatever the Levites say is the righteous thing to do. And so there's, there's this attending to needs, this ministering that's supposed to happen that isn't about the sacrifices anymore. The younger people are supposed to be doing that heavy lifting, and the older people are now supposed to be doing the things that wisdom should have put them to the point where they can do them in a more effective way. Right? The teacher that, you know, you're supposed to gain wisdom with age. And if you've gained wisdom with age, you lose strength, so hopefully you get something. You know, if you've gained wisdom with age— then all of a sudden your focus should not be on lifting up that thigh and throwing it on the fire. Your, your focus should be on being more effective at teaching. And I think in the physical sense, one of the things you talked about and in the spiritual where you said there's a part of it where what you're doing is you're really you're, you're helping to also prepare for the next generation. This is that picture of the person coming into their life. This is where if you're a grandfather in a physical sense – you're looking at your grandchildren. You're looking at the next generation in a broader sense because you've had a ministry out in the world and you've done things in the world and you've impact. You know, you have real things that you've done. There are things that need to be handed off to. I mean, this is that whole the the phase that we're talking about now. That's kind of the big picture of it. Is you're preparing for death. You're making sure that you're not indispensable. Right. You know, I mean, it's. I mean, it's. There's all these sort of things that are going on at the same time that you're doing real work. That, I mean, you know, because there's a part of it where if you're good at your work, they want to look at you as indispensable. And you need to, you know, I mean, and you're having, while at the same time you're not being unwilling to help, you're also recognizing that you need to work as hard as you can to not be indispensable. And they won't get that wisdom unless they do the work. And right. it's easy to keep doing the work instead of pushing people to the point where they get the wisdom by doing the work. Because it's where and you so got it from, right? This, right. That you got it from that. And so. 
you know, and and it's this picture that the work stops. And I think, you know, Titus 2, it's talking about older men and older women. And it's it's like really explicit that this is what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be handing it off to the next generation. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith and love and in patience. And the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And so you especially see it here with the older women, that they're supposed to be mentoring the next generation of women. I mean, that's what their primary role, be, their primary role before was to be taking care of children, right? You'll be saved through childbirth, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2. And now all of a sudden, that's their children are older. That's not their role anymore. Now their role is to help the next generation do the same thing that they were doing. And so they become that advisor, just like the priests when they were older than 50. They became the advisors, and they other people were supposed to do the work. You know, that physical picture of the, the person whose children has left their home, they're supposed to just be advising. They're not actually supposed to be raising their children's children. We've flipped that on its head, too. But that's not how God structured the world. I think it's something that we need to be prepared for, need to be thinking deliberately about. Because if you look at it, you know, not from a spiritual perspective, but just that, you know, the the state of the elderly in America today, um, you know, we and other people talk a lot about how, you know, younger people aren't, uh, you know, taking responsibility, progressing, maturing in life. But I think, you know, unfortunately, it's not limited to younger people. You know, often, you know, the younger people, you know, the, the, the older people, the elderly, they don't have a purpose and a drive in their life. They had a drive to get to where they are, and now they're retired, and they feel little responsibility to do much of anything for anyone. And so the younger people, they're just trying to short-circuit it and say, can I get there without having a you know 30-year career? You know, so, so you have a lot of people today where we're supposed to be learning from the elderly, but often the elderly, not only are they not proactive in teaching, they, they have not devoted the time and attention to think about things to be able to teach. Because there are elderly people that there's not a whole lot you can learn from because they are just not prepared to teach you anything. And so, you know, when we take that from a spiritual sense, we shouldn't think that we know how elderly people should be. So we just have to replicate that in a spiritual way because, I mean, we, we would run a risk of falling into a lot of laziness and, and things like that um, where, you know, it is a time where the work isn't as intense, perhaps. The physical aspect of the work decreases substantially but the work is still as just as intense think of the the you know the priests that were you know the 70 year old priest and you get this case that all the civil magistrates are going we can't figure out this case well i'm sorry that's pretty intense work it's not intense labor it's not intense physical work but it is really intense work and so but i i mean I think the attitude in America in general among the elderly is I'm spending my children's inheritance. Why should I give it to them? Which means that they're acting like children, right? I mean, we shouldn't think that that there aren't lots of 70-year-old children, 80-year-old children, 90-year-old children. There certainly are plenty of them that only think about themselves. They're only – they're focused on satisfying what they want, which is really like acting like somebody that's that's in childhood. Right. And – but again – how many people in the church, the older saints in the church, the people who have been in the church for 50 years, 
How many of them are exactly the same way? That all they're there is for themselves. All they're there is to be fed by other people. All they're there is for them to be changed. They don't. They act like infants, even though they've been in church for seventy years. I think that's. I mean, Joshua said it. They they haven't practiced teaching along the way. They. Ha- I mean, these things. They never they, had a ministry, right? They right? never acted like a an adult. And so, I mean, there's this part of it where we forget how much work it takes to get to a certain point. I mean, I, I know like anybody who's been in any particular job where they've worked for a certain amount of time, they'll look back and they'll go, 10 years ago, I couldn't have done X. You know I mean? I, there's, there are things that they, that you move forward in. And so if you think of this being a responsibility that's before you your whole life, that there's preparation for it, that all the things of, you know, like this is not all of you should be teachers. There's a part of where everybody does some teaching Everybody does teaching along the way. Everybody, you know. Should. Right. And so there's this part of it where if you, but if you haven't been doing teaching all along the way, if you weren't teaching your younger brothers and sisters, you know, whether you're talking physical or spiritual when you were young, if you weren't teaching the group behind you as you moved into the next phase, when you get to be an elder, you're not going to have any skill at teaching. You're not, you know, and I think people just think, oh, you just naturally develop it all of a sudden. That is just not true at all. And if you had no ministry, what are you going to pass on to the next generation? Nothing, because you have nothing to give them. And you know, and that's kind of the picture that's in our physical country is that through taxes and everything, it's very hard to actually give your children much. And but the church, the elders in the church, and I don't mean the the pastors, the you know, in that sense, the older the brothers that, in the faith, the older brothers in the faith in the church, they don't typically don't see themselves as having you know a responsibility to pass things on how many churches have you know an elders class you know older saints class whatever they want to call it but they kind of separate them and say you know just like we do in the society we put all of the older people into a nursing home or assisted living center or you shuffle them off to a retirement community and you say they don't have anything for the next generation well where did they learn that they learned that in the church when we did an episode on how do you create a culture of life, and we kind of talked about that, that a lot of this really depends on your view of what, elder, what, what you are worth as you get older. Do you actually think of people? Or are we like the Greeks who only think your only, you, your only value is when you're young and you're full of vitality, and it's a very physical-centered view of the world. And so, I mean, you can, you can see this playing out in, in how we've thought about all these things. As opposed to thinking God actually put it so that you would progress through certain stages of life physically so that you could see that there are those values at each one of those levels spiritually that that each one of those things brings contribution and and productivity and productivity means something different at each one of those stages um and you're not you're not expecting the same kind of productivity from somebody who's an elder but you're still expecting that their contributions are invaluable that, that without them, you don't have a functioning society. You don't have a functioning church. Without them, you don't have continuity because their focus really is on transferring wisdom to the next generation, transferring understanding to the next generation. So the church becomes discontinuous when you don't do that. And so what you end up with is what should happen is that the church grows in knowledge and understanding, right? That's what's supposed to happen. The Holy Spirit is washing the you know, through the word is washing the bride of Christ in the water of the word, removing spots and wrinkles. The church is supposed to be advancing. But when the elders don't say, we're supposed to be lifting up the next generation, 
right? You know, there's the old science, you know, idiom that kind of goes that, you know, that I could see so far because I stood on the on the shoulders of giants. Right. Well, when you don't have the elders putting the generation after them on their shoulders, they can never see any further. And so when we look at the weakness in our churches, we should recognize it's because the elders aren't going, you should go further than me. And that's exactly what the elders are supposed to be doing, transferring their wisdom to the next generation. So when those people that they're transferring it to are their age, they'll have more wisdom than they do, and you advance, and the church marches forward, and it it fills the whole earth. If we did not see farther than others, it's because we had fat babies standing on our shoulders, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's where we are in a sense. But that, I mean, that's a biblical principle. You're, you know, it right. comes right from Paul's letter to Timothy, First Timothy two two. And some of the context for this is Paul's. Uh, Timothy's clearly an elder in the church. He's also happens to be what seems like a young man, but he's an elder, and so Paul's writing. Or at least to him. he's given that role by Paul, <laughs> right? Uh, so, so he says, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there's this tiered structure that, that Paul's expecting. It's like, hey, I'm pouring into you, Timothy, and then, Timothy, you're supposed to give this to faithful men, and you're supposed to give it to faithful men who aren't just consumers. They're supposed to be producers, too, who can give it to others also. Um, so there's just this, this expectation all the way down. And this is no different than the Old Testament. Right. You know. The, the Old Testament is just, hey, you're supposed to teach your children that they might tell the generation that comes after. It's always been this way right. among the people of God is there has to be some continuity. That's what it means to be people of the word. So there's at least one example we have of a priest who was in this stage, like a, a Levitical priest. You've got Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a it's a good example. You know, you have to be careful when you're dealing with the, the narrative structures to draw from those. But we know that he was a righteous and blameless man. Mm-hmm. And we know he was advanced in age. And he, a lot falls to him. It's his time to go up and, and minister in the, t- in the temple. And, and, and everybody keys in on the thing that happens when he's in there because he's got this encounter with an angel and then he can't talk and finds out he's going to have a baby. His wife's going to have a baby. But what's he doing when he's in there? You know, he's offering incense. That was that was the thing that he did. Mm-hmm. So we've got one case where we know, here's something that one of those older priests did. What's incense? What does offering incense mean? And And it's pretty clear when you break down what's happening in tabernacle and temple worship that the incense is a picture of the prayers of the saints. And so there's at least this one other thing that you mm-hmm. should expect the priests to be doing as they're transferring knowledge, as they're transferring wisdom, as they're, they're teaching and ministering and they're meeting their need, the needs of the, the flock. They're also supposed to be dedicated to prayer. And I think the implication is they're not just supposed to be praying for themselves, but that, they ha- that part of what they're doing while they're pouring all this in is they're also supposed to be praying for that generation too, that they have a, a real ministry of prayer at that time. And, you know, it, ties directly to wisdom, right? Because in Romans 8, you know, it says the Holy Spirit joins us and prays basically as we ought to pray. And the person who's more mature in the faith should be praying the way that they ought to pray without the intervention of the Holy Spirit. And when they're burning that incense in the tabernacle or the temple, that, you know, the the 
the altar of incense is right next to the veil. So there's also a sense that you're drawing very near to God. And through wisdom, through understanding God, you should be able to pray his will better than you did when you were you know, 20, than you were 30, than you were 50. And so as you mature, there is this idea that we should be getting better at prayer and not just that we're more faithful in it, but that we actually get better at it because we're supposed to discern God's will better. And this is one of the things that the elders in the church said, this is why we can't wait tables because we've got two other things to do. We have the ministry of the word and prayer, and that's what our focus is going to be. Yep. I mean, and it, it changes the way you view prayer. It changes. I mean, I, I'd, I'd love us to do an episode on prayer because, I mean, I think there's there's so much that we think about it wrongly. But when you think about the prayers of a young man, or think about it, the things that a young man asks for versus that an old older man would ask for, the things that you would ask for today, if you look back and think of the things you would have asked for 20 years ago, that you looked at yourself and said, you are stupid. You know, I mean, the, the things that you the things that you want. I mean, even when you're thinking about how men, men, the way they grow is by doing the work and by by, by doing difficult things, by suffering in real ways, mm-hmm. by and by going into situations where they're going to be over their head, where they have to learn, where they have to struggle, and there's a part. I mean, I, rem- I remember years ago here, and I don't know, th- I don't know the context of the story. I just remember there was a prayer meeting, and someone prayed. And they were dealing with a difficult thing. And they said, dear Lord, please lift this from me. And an older man goes, oh, Lord, no, don't take it away from him. <laughs> and I just, I just remember all that context of just and – just, and, and I remember thinking as a young man thinking it was funny. And I remember as growing older going, I know I, – I, I mean, I got it. It wasn't like I didn't get it at all, but I really understand it now. I, I remember somebody that used to come to our prayer meetings. I think his initials were Charles Churchill. And he oh, would claim – <laughs> And he would co- and he would accuse me of unpraying all the time. <laughs> I was <laughs> thinking about it. Pray, and then I'd kind of try to correct their prayer. <laughs> I, I, I distinctly is, remember that. And so, no, yeah, no, so not, remember, not just what he said, but also the exact opposite. <laughs> also, very different than what he just asked for. And I mean, and, and, and when but you it's re- like sickness, where it's very easy to pray, may the person get well, and. So this would be a case where I would say it, where I would go, or God, if it's not your will that they get well, we know it's your will to use it to perfect their faith. So perfect their faith and end this trial when their faith has been perfected according to the trial. And so that would be an example where I would, yeah, where you would accuse me of doing such a thing. Well, I mean, he's not sick enough yet, Lord. I mean. But, I mean, when we went through the book of Daniel, I remember there was that point where Daniel has prayed to ask certain things, and then this the man, you know, the the probably like an archangel or something comes to him and says, I've been sent to explain these things to you, but I was delayed because of these other things that were going on. And while it King, doesn't— or, Yeah, the Prince of Persia. The, right, and it doesn't directly relate to prayer in one sense, but there's this part of it where there's wisdom—I mean— God is doing things that are more complex than we understand. There's there are resource constraints that we don't understand, and there are times where when you're older, you you pray more wisely, like you said. I mean, right. just, and we just don't hey, even Daniel, think about what that Daniel's means. Daniel's like eighty or probably eighty five or something like that, and he goes, "Oh yeah, Jeremiah said seventy years we're supposed to go back to the promised land. I guess it's time to pray this prayer now, right?" I mean, right. and he's very deliberate about it and with wisdom and and yeah, prayer in like. We should do one on prayer sometime, but one thing that's really important to recognize with prayer is if your prayers are not increasing your wisdom about who God is, 
you're not praying the way you should pray. Right. Because take where God says, this is not, I'm not going to answer that prayer. You're supposed to learn from that, not just go, well, God didn't answer it. Yeah. Just like, like if your father said no, just like there's a right. reason he said no, right? I mean, and I think as parents, we're always going, please think about why I said no. I'm telling you why I said no. And the child just goes, he said no. And they're, you're just going, and, you know and, I mean? and God even says, really? I'm a good father. If you, I, you ask for the Holy Spirit, I wouldn't give it to you. That's not how it works. And his desire is to give us good gifts. It's our sin that prevents it. And when we pray, we should be going, okay, so why is my will not aligned with God's will? Or why is this actually a good gift? Right. <laughs> As we talk in these stages of life, it's really easy to see that the church isn't, doesn't have the expectation for people to move through them. But what's more important is God does. God actually expects us to mature. He actually expects us to be productive. He actually expects us to have, to have wisdom in our older years. These are things that God expects of us. So each of us has to be diligent to do these things. And as you hear these things and talk about this, it can be very overwhelming. But there's also the, the verse in Joel that says that, you know, he can restore the years that the locust has eaten. If you submit yourself to him and say, no, I'm supposed to be here to be God's servant. I'm supposed to be here to be producing 60-fold, you know, 100-fold, then God can restore all those years, even though you didn't use them the way that they were supposed to be used. So the, the answer is, be busy now. Christ redeems our time. He purchases us so that we become his servants, and his servants are productive. So be about the work of the church. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.